The Exchange Podcast is brought to you in part by the University System of New Hampshire in partnership with its four institutions around the state. Visit usnh.edu slash yours to learn what you can accomplish here. From NHPR, I'm Peter Biello, and this is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange. This week, the Senate voted on the state's next two-year spending plan. Governor Chris Sununu lends support to the new abortion restrictions put in the budget by Republican lawmakers. And next week, an event meant to highlight and encourage giving to nonprofits kicks off. We'll learn more about how the state's nonprofits are doing in this hour. These and other stories made headlines this week, and we are glad you are with us for our chat about them today. To join the conversation, please give us a call. Our number is one 800 892 6477. That's 1-800-892-6477. You can use Facebook or tweet us as well or email us. Our address is exchange at nhpr.org. With us for this part of the program, Ethan DeWitt, reporter for New Hampshire Bulletin. Ethan, thank you very much for being on the program today. Thanks for having me. And Anne-Marie Timmons of New Hampshire Bulletin is also with us. Anne-Marie, thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the Senate vote on the budget and then the abortion bill in just a little bit. But first, uh, I wanted to focus on the state system for helping people experiencing mental health problems. Uh, Governor Sununu spoke at his weekly press briefing yesterday about making progress since the state Supreme Court's decision. Uh, that decision uh, a few weeks ago, the court ruled that the longstanding method of dealing with shortage of mental health beds, holding patients in the ER for an extended period of time, without due process, was a violation of their rights. Since then, the governor announced an executive order to increase the number of emergency mental health beds. So, Anne-Marie Timmons, uh, we learned this week that the Department of Health and Human Services proposed a solution. Can you tell us about it? Yes, they've done a couple of things. Um, one, on the on the budget front, they have put a lot more money out there for hospitals, long-term health care facilities to make room, to give you know turn some of their beds into psychiatric beds. You know, past years, the money they were offering, it would have cost those places to provide it. Now there's enough money that they are. So that has brought on either now or a promise to bring on almost 50 beds between hospitals and long-term healthcare facilities. And we've already seen that make a huge difference for the number of adults waiting in emergency rooms. Um, it went from 33 in mid-May. Today there is one one adult waiting in an emergency room for a bed. So that's dramatic. Um, it's not the same case for kids. That's gone in the other direction. It's 25 mid-May, I think it's 36 today. So that piece still needs to be resolved. But there is that budget piece that has, you know, immediately cleared up some backlog in this in the uh, emergency rooms. There's also been, you know, Ethan will probably talk about this as well, but through the budget, we've seen more money put in for a forensic hospital which is a secure psychiatric unit um, currently at the prison that would create a new space on the state hospital grounds. Um, there's money going to the community mental health centers for um, these long-term community care beds and transitional housing. Sometimes the reason there's a backlog to get into the state hospital is, is because they can't release people who are ready to be released who still need some help. So they need to go into a transitional housing unit there's not enough of those right now. So that's on. That's one piece. Um, what has gotten less attention is a last minute proposed legislation from 
DHHS Friday that was submitted late Friday afternoon to senators, you know, to the surprise of the mental health centers, the hospitals, NAMI, um, that says we're going to create this new way for hospitals to hold people. Um, it'll be called the medical protective custody. Someone will come in the hospital rather than the state will be able to hold them for up to three days so they can decide what issues they are experiencing and what the right treatment is. And when I talked to the commissioner of health and human services, she said, this is really meant to get people to the right kind of care because sometimes when people come in, they don't need to go to the emergency, you know, the state hospital under involuntary emergency commitment. They really need maybe rehab or they need a long-term nursing home facility. But right now, the only way to hold someone against their will is with this involuntary emergency admission process, which takes you from an ER to the state hospital. So this is another avenue in their mind. So they think this will also help. I will say, I just put up a story a few minutes ago, there's a lot of concern about this from the ACLU, NAMI, and other places like that. Well, um, let me let me ask you about that, because the, the three-day hold for, for people against their will, that, that was kind of the crux, right? I mean, initially people were held for much longer than than three days without getting a proper hearing. And so they would almost be indefinitely uh, held held there. Are you saying that this is uh, at least perceived to be by some as a way around that so that people could be held beyond three days or is it still a three-day cutoff? Well, it's a, it's it's unclear. And partly because the language thus far is so um, vague, it says you come in under this medical protective custody, you can be held up to three days um, a max of three days. Um, and if you want to challenge this, the Department of Health and Human Services will look at your records and decide whether you need to remain there. Under the other process, it's an independent review by a judge. And so I, there's a concern there of it not being really an independent analysis if it's done by the state. Um, just, you know, the perception of that is a concern. And then does that process, if you're found to no longer be able to be held under that process, do you get transferred over into this next process um, with another three days? So in the end, are you held for six days before you actually get a court hearing? So that's a concern. Um, there's not been a public hearing next week. I'm, I'm told there will be one on this coming up this week. Um, it's been tucked into a bill, a house bill that was laid on the table that sought to create a study commission on charitable gaming. It's one of those last minute non-germane amendments. So we'll learn, we'll know more next week, but there is a lot of concern about that right now, just because there's not much information. Right. And is it unusual for DHHS to submit something like this, uh, especially when major stakeholders like NAMI may be caught by surprise? Well, um, I think I, I did ask the commissioner that question and she said, you know, the decision came out of the court mid-May. This We're at this process we are at, you know, we're at this point in the legislative session that she wanted to act quickly. There was not time to get everyone around the table. She'd been thinking about this for some time since she had been, um, you know, head of the hospital, CEO of the hospital. And so that's her explanation. I will say the other side does not feel like that is justified, that they should have been consulted. Um, so whether it's unusual, I'm not sure. It's not sitting well with the folks who felt cut out of the process, but who have a real interest in it. Well, listeners, we'd love to hear from you on this if you have a, a thought that you'd like to share. Our number, 
888-646-6477. You can also email us. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. Uh, Anne-Marie Timmons, with respect to the first thing you said about, about being able to suddenly add some bed capacity and that taking the strain at least off the uh, adult population experiencing mental health problems, uh, the, the governor seems to be pleased with this, but what, are, are critics saying anything about this? Yes, I, it is a step in the immediate right direction because there are fewer people sitting in ERs waiting for treatment. They're actually somewhere getting treatment, but there, there's a real desire to have that not be the solution. They don't want people in hospitals. They want more services before you go to a hospital. So more mental health providers or community resources or transitional beds. So yes, it has helped solve that backlog in an ER, but there is, you know, this can't be the end of the solution in their mind. And I, I do think the state doesn't intend for it to be, um, and, but the other pieces just are not in place yet. They, hopefully they'll be coming along by the end of the year. According to the commissioner, this includes a mobile crisis unit to go out to people when they're in crisis rather than have them come in to an ER. It's these transitional housing beds and, and whatnot that I mentioned. Those just aren't up, you know, online yet, they're coming. So, yes, the new beds are great, but that is not the goal for folks in the field. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll touch base on this issue again as as the story continues to unfold. Uh, listeners, if you've got questions or comments about the budget, give us a call. Our number, 1-800-892-6477. Uh, as part of the conversation about the budget, we're going to talk about Uh, the new limits on abortion in New Hampshire. Uh, These would limit abortions after 24 weeks of pregnancy, except in cases where the mother's health is in jeopardy. We're also going to talk about the current language on the teaching of racism and sexism in schools uh, and among other state contractors um, that that has changed recently. We'll learn more about that. Call us now if you'd like to be part of the conversation on that. We'd love to bring you in in a timely manner. Our phone number, 1-800-892-6477. You can also email us. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. Ethan DeWitt, I'll turn to you now because you've been following the Senate vote. Uh, How did the vote go in the budget yesterday in the Senate? Well, it was kind of in a lot of ways typical to what you've seen in many years. Um, What happens at the end of the the budget process is um, the Senate essentially gets a, uh, the opposing party in the Senate, the minority party, in this case, the Democrats, essentially get a, a chance to add amendments that they would like. Um, you know, the, the budget at this point, in, when it comes to this final vote, has pretty much been ironed out in the Republican caucus. Um, and they're, they, have a, they have a product that they're ready to pass. So the day is really about Democrats um, trying to uh, kind of um, force debates on certain aspects of the budget. Um, and so what you saw yesterday was a flurry of amendments. It was about 25 amendments, and they spent a lot of time on them, um, you know, between 10 minutes to half an hour on each one. So it took a whole day. Um, but you kind of, at the end of the day, you had a really clear outline of what the priorities of both the parties are and kind of where the end game is for the budget as it goes into negotiations um, with the House at the end of this month. Uh, before we get into the discussion of uh, the the abortion part of the the budget, uh, were there any amendments, Ethan, that that stood out to you as as significant? Well, that's the thing about this. They usually aren't because usually what happens is there is a policy bill um, that's attached to the budget that includes a lot of priorities, and we'll get into that. One of them is this abortion ban. And so generally in this period, the Democrats are are kind of trying to take certain um, pieces out of that policy bill. 
um, and kind of forced debate, like I said earlier. But there were a few um, kind of uh, amendments that actually did have bipartisan support. So there was, and my colleague Anne Marie, she's um, written extensively about this. There was a, a cut of, I believe, about 22 positions to DCYF that the House budget had included. Um, yesterday, um, the Republicans and the Democrats came up with a compromise. They decided to restore uh, 12 of those positions and then leave the other 10 open for uh, potentially re restoring down the line. Democrats weren't totally happy with this because they said we should, we should restore all 22 um, because the, you know, the DCYF needs all the staff it, it can in order to bring its caseload case down. Um, but Republicans said this was enough and that the agency has had a, um, trouble hiring and wouldn't fill those positions. So that was a rare note of kind of quasi-bipartisanship. There was a little bit of partisanship at the end. Um, another thing they did is the House um, had passed the House had actually killed an effort, and Anne-Marie has written about this too, that had puzzled a lot of people in the Senate, um, killed an effort to help businesses get um, some of the Main Street relief funds um, and some of the CARES Act money that they had um, that had been rolled out last year. Um, the, the way that the, it was set up, if you didn't, if your business was not um, created within nine months, I believe, of the beginning of the pandemic, and Emory can correct me here, um, if you were a new business that kind of essentially was started up bef like right before the pandemic, you wouldn't be eligible for that aid. Um, the House struck that down uh, this week. They actually voted against it, and the Senate put that back in the budget. So that was also an interesting note. But most of the issues were pretty partisan, pretty party line, um, and you know, a lot of long, fiery speeches where everyone knew what the outcome would be. I see. And Anne-Marie, with respect to those uh, 12 positions that were reinstated for DCYF, what positions are we talking about? These are um, DCYF sort of care work, child care. When we, we have a call into DCYF um, and there's a concern about child abuse and neglect, we need to go out and investigate that. Um, the, there's you know more calls than people, obviously, in caseloads in New Hampshire had gotten way above the national average. Uh, the, the legislature, Democrats put in a lot of money last time around to bring that down. Um, and now there's, you know, they feel like they're losing ground again with losing initially 22 positions. Now it's fewer. Okay. Well, with respect to the budget and, and abortion, it's worth mentioning that that there, there is that provision that I mentioned, uh, the bill that would limit abortion after 24 weeks uh, makes no exception for rape or incest. Uh, Governor Sununu faced some questions about this yesterday, especially with respect to uh, his previous statements on the campaign trail about his position on abortion. You said as a candidate last year that you didn't see any need for changes to state abortion law. So I'm wondering if you can uh, speak to uh, the, the change in your position there. I haven't changed my position one bit. I'm, I'm pro-choice, uh, and like many pro-choice citizens, I've always supported common-sense reforms to limit abortions in months 7, 8, and 9. Um, this was not my proposal. It was the legislature's. Uh, but I understand that 43 other states, including liberal states of, of Massachusetts and New York, already have similar provisions. So, you know, this is not anyone claiming that this is some radical restriction. That's just partisan politics. So 43 other states are already there. You know, this is this is a I'm pro-choice, and this is a measure that a lot of pro-choice uh, individuals support. We're talking about abortion in months seven, eight, and nine. You know, that's already out there for most of the country. Just to follow up with that, Governor, I mean, you did say, "quote I'm not looking to make any changes," and I wasn't. So, I didn't propose this. The legislature did. But you have the power to stop it, though. 
am I going to veto the entire budget? I, look, I don't fundamentally disagree with late-term abortions in months seven, eight, and nine. I, I never have. Um, I'm pro-choice, but as I've said, a lot of individuals that are pro-choice, I think there's a plurality of citizens in New Hampshire that agree that those restrictions shouldn't be in place. Forty-three other states agree that those restrictions should be in place. Very liberal states agree that those restrictions should be in place. Um, I didn't propose this. The, the legislature did. But if they're going to attach it to the budget, which they, it's their prerogative to do that, um, you know, we're not going to throw away the whole budget, you know, over over this issue. But I don't even fundamentally disagree with it. I just I just understand that um, I think the way they've they've done it is. Uh, a sensible approach. It isn't a ban on abortion or anything like that. It's a sensible approach and something that most other states have already done. So, Henry Timmons, that, that was the governor speaking yesterday at, at the press conference, his, his Q&A with reporters about this. Uh, to your knowledge, Henry, is it true that 43 other states have legislation like this on their books? I, I can't speak to that exact number, but I, I think the governor is right that a majority of states do, um, I believe. The other thing that I think is worth noting is when uh, UNH Survey Center did a poll earlier this year, it asked two things about abortion. One is just where are you generally at restrictions? And pretty big majority said we favor um, abortion being legal in all or most circumstances. But when asked specifically about the 24-week uh, ban, it was split. It was really evenly split between those who said they favored it and those who opposed it. And I believe the question was asked in, you know, 24 weeks, except for the exception of mother's health. What, what is unknown is if they had also been told specifically, this doesn't include a exemption for rape or incest, would there have been di a different outcome? But as it was asked, it was really evenly split in, in that poll. Well, listeners, uh, we, we wanted to play the entire Q&A, uh, or most of the Q&A anyway, about that particular subject for you uh, to get your reaction as well. And so if you'd like to give us a call, now's the time to do it. Our phone number, 1-800-892-6477, 1-800-892-6477. And uh, Emery, how have uh, rep uh, opponents to this this reacted so far? Uh, I think, as you can imagine, they feel like this is... Um cruel. Um, it, would, it would criminalize uh, doctors who perform um, these abortions. Um, they think it's unnecessary, unfair. They feel like it um, does, as Ethan said, question whether the governor is truly um, pro-choice or not. There's another concern, too, and that is this bill initially had this sort of complicated rule that you had to separate abortion care from other care, both financially and physically. And there was a compromise struck and they said, okay, we'll take that out because abortion providers said, that's just not possible. We already separate financially. It's essentially will bankrupt the operation if we have to build a whole new place with whole new staff for like 7% of our work, which is the abortion piece. So that was a compromise that, that is out now, but it is going to come back when I believe when the, the contract for Planned Parenthood comes up before the executive council this summer or fall. So that fight is not over. It's just paused for right now. Mm -hmm. uh, Ethan DeWitt, uh, do you have anything to add on this? You, you watched the Senate debate the budget yesterday. Uh, did they address this at all? Yes. Um, and I, I, I can get to that. It was a, a very emotional debate um, kind of drawn out. And But I just think that one of the dynamics that's worth noting here is I think everyone was watching this budget process and wondering what 
how exactly how much the governor was planning to insert himself at this late stage, um, because obviously there's three pieces to the budget. There's the House version, there's the, there's the Senate version, and then there's the governor's decision to sign it. And so depending on kind of your style as governor, you can be more or less active in that final stage and decide that you want to exert influence. So when the Senate added this in, which came last week, added the abortion ban, the House hadn't done that. The Senate added that in. Um, and there was a lot of uncertainty over, over whether uh, the governor would, you know, he, he's looking at potentially a, uh, the next step in his political career, um, what he would do. I think by he, he first uh, gave his position Thursday morning on a um, talk show, a, a radio talk show. I think his decision to do that was sort of a signal to the Senate that he wasn't going to, um, you know, put up too strong of a, an issue over this or the divisive concepts bill and that he would rather have the budget move through smoothly. So I think that's a little bit of the political context that he's assigned to um, you know, not necessarily get into the fray as much as he could. Um, and also, you know, it, it, it appears that he actually also agrees with the ban. So th that's a little bit of what's going on. Um, this, you know, I think his comments yesterday morning um, definitely uh, kind of uh, impacted the way the Senate uh, kind of talked about the abortion ban, um, but it was just a remarkable debate that kind of brought a lot of emotion to the fore. Um, one of the senator, um, um, Senator Perkins Quoka of, of Portsmouth, is pregnant right now. She uh, uh, she's a Democrat. She um, her child is I, I believe the 27 weeks um, along, and and she talked about how you know the from personal experience, just how, how much love she has for a child, but that if, if she, if something were um, to emerge, you know, where there was something, there was some sort of complication with the health of her, of, of her child, and that, uh, you know, there, there was like a really bad prognosis, she would want to have the ability to make the difficult decision on her own. Um, and so that was a, a kind of a striking personal example from the floor. Um, then you also had Republicans like Sharon Carson of, of Londonderry, who invoked her own children and kind of uh, the idea that, you know, it, uh, that children who are 24 weeks and on should be given a, a chance. Um, one thing that is notable is that there is no exception for fetal health. Um, there's an exception for health of the mother, but there's no exception if there are determined to be severe complications um, that could um, really limit the quality of the child life or, 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 um, or limit its length. Um, and so it, that was, a, was another thing that was batted around. But so it was, it was, a, it was a very um, passionate debate that kind of, uh, you know, got to the core of the senator's um, backgrounds and their emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, Sununu made a point at the press conference yesterday to call himself pro-choice. Uh, some might disagree with him given both this stance uh, on, on this abortion restriction and uh, longtime listeners may remember that as an executive counselor in 2015, uh, Governor, uh, then executive counselor Sununu cast the tie-breaking vote against uh, the state contract for Planned Parenthood. And that, he cited, was in response to a James O'Keefe Project Veritas video that uh, was later uh, found to have been very misleading with respect to Planned Parenthood's practices. Uh, Ethan, do you get the sense that Governor Sununu is trying to have it both ways? On, on the issue of abortion and being pro-choice. Yeah, I think that, and again, uh, I think he was put in a really tough position and politically uh, in the sense of like, he had to make a stand this week he, and he didn't have a press conference the week before. And so he had a whole week without having to 
um, answer the question of what he what he was going to do with this ban because this ban was only introduced um, a week before this Wednesday, um, so it's really only you know ten days old or so. Um, so he had a decision, and I think he in some ways crafted a path of least resistance when it came to this decision um, because as you could hear in that press conference yesterday. Um, you know, there's a lot, he's threading a very fine, fine needle here where he's saying he is pro-choice. Yes, in 2020, uh, when he, you know, ran for re-election, he said he would, wouldn't support any, uh, any um, you know, additional uh, restrictions on abortion in the state. But now he's saying that, you know, this wasn't his idea and that, uh, you know, he's going along with it. He doesn't disagree with it. So it's a really tough spot. And, and I think it's unusual in, um, for this governor and this Senate. Usually the Senate doesn't throw these kinds of bombs into legislation that they hand over to the governor. This was, um, I've, I've watched, you know, this particular Senate president, Chuck Morris, and this particular governor in the past for the last four years, they've actually worked quite well together. And if you remember earlier on in this budget process, when the House had piled a lot of provisions into the bill, Sununu was a lot more forthright about how he, he didn't want it. And he said that the Senate would fix it. Uh, and the Senate did change some of those pieces, but they added in this abortion ban. So that really did kind of force Sununu into taking a stand. And that I think is um, a lot of what you've seen this week. This is the choice that the governor has made. And it's definitely gonna be a choice that he will probably have to answer for on both sides, uh, whether he gets support for this or uh, he's gonna get probably a lot of criticism as well, uh, especially as it looks to any future campaigns as he mulls a potential U.S. Senate run, for instance. We're speaking with Ethan DeWitt and Anne-Marie Timmons, both of New Hampshire Bulletin, and we're speaking about uh, the state budget, and we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we have more to talk about with respect to the budget, including uh, the divisive concepts language that has been inserted into the budget. We'll also talk about uh, the tax cuts that are in the budget. We'll talk about right-to-work legislation and whatever else is on your mind. We'd love to hear from you. Our number, 1-800-892-6477. That's 1-800-892-NHPR. You can also email us. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. This is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello, and we will be right back. listening to NHPR for about as long as I can remember. New Hampshire Public Radio went on the air on the date of our son's first birthday. I've only been here for about four months. NHPR has just helped me get more perspective on the state that is now my home. Whether you've been listening for just a few weeks or you've been a loyal listener for decades, NHPR is your public radio station. Actively support your connection to community-minded journalism by becoming a member at nhpr.org. Monday on The Exchange, a conversation with author Kevin Kwan. He joined me recently for a virtual edition of Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. You may know Kevin Kwan from his popular Crazy Rich Asian series of books and the movie of that name. We'll talk about his new novel, Sex and Vanity, which pays tribute to E.M. Forrester's A Room with the View. We'll talk about that and more with Kevin Kwan Monday morning at 9 on NHPR. 
Right now, we're looking back at the week in news on the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on the Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we're talking a little bit about the budget. And of course, uh, one of the big parts of the budget is the divisive concepts language. Uh, It doesn't have to do with spending, but it does have to do with the the discussion of racism and sexism in schools and among state contractors. And we'd love to hear from you on this. What do you think of the new language? Uh, If you're unfamiliar with it, we're going to talk about it in just a moment. Our number, one 800 892-6477. That's 1-800-892-NHPR. You can also email exchange at nhpr.org. So this idea of divisive concepts has been in play a lot this year, first as House Bill 544 and then as an amendment to House Bill 2. The measure originally would have prohibited the dissemination of certain ideas related to race and sex by schools, government offices, and their contractors. Uh, We're here with Ethan DeWitt and Anne-Marie Timmons of New Hampshire Bulletin to discuss this. Uh, And Ethan, since you were following the Senate debates this week, um, can you talk to us a little bit about how the new language in the the Senate version of the budget is different from, from previous iterations? Sure. So the first version um, actually focused a lot on government contractors. So this would be um, the the law kind of applied to any company that had a contract with the state, whether they were private um, or part of the state. And it would regulate if you have a contract with the state, you're not allowed to um, carry out any instruction that um, implies that one race is inherently advantaged over another race or one protected or one gender is inherently um, uh, advantage of another gender, or that a person of a race, a person of a, of a gender, might have, um, you know, in, in implicit or unconscious uh, bias over uh, another one. So that that drew a lot of um, um, uh, criticism because the it was directly going after you know private companies that uh, happen to have do business with the state or organizations as well. Um, and so the Senate version changed a lot of that. But the, I would say the underlying dynamic is still the same. So I'm just going to walk through some of the changes. So one of the, sure. the big changes is they dropped the, it doesn't, it no longer applies to those contractors. It now only applies to, um, you know, agents of the state, anybody who works at an agency or public school teachers, um, kind of anybody who's a state employee who's carrying out these, these teachings or these trainings. The other significant thing that they did is they moved the bill into under the umbrella of the Human Rights Commission. That is New Hampshire's commission that kind of explores claims of discrimination, whether it's in employment, if you, if you feel that uh, you know, you're being discriminated against uh, at, at your job, or whether it's housing, if, you, if, you're, if you're being shut out of getting an apartment. Um, there's a number of different areas that they take up and they deal with a number of protected classes that go beyond race and gender, um, you know, gender identity, um, um, uh, you know, like age, um, there's a whole bunch, there's a whole range of classes that that deals with. So the new version puts this bill under that statute and puts, adds it as part of the state's anti-discrimination law. And essentially it's adding a new category of anti-discrimination. And now you can't be uh, discriminated against and discrimination counts if you feel that you are being targeted for, um, for your race or your gender or your gender identity or se- or your sexual preference, you if you feel you're being targeted in a way that suggests that you have biased over someone else or that you have advantages, for instance, if you were a straight male, um, you know, over a, a, a gay female or something, you would have 
advantages inherent. So th this law would prevent that from being taught. Um, and it would, it would allow for claims to be brought before this commission. And that's the significant change that um, a, a lot of critics are, are pointing to is saying, this is actually gonna make it harder for teachers because now you have a direct kind of claim process that um, could result in a lot of lawsuits against schools. And so teachers, the, the opponents of, of the language in this bill would say, might just avoid altogether topics that might be valuable to talk about with, with students because well, they just, they don't want to land in hot water. Yeah, and what the, um, the 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 senator who's presented this, Senator Jeb Bradley, would say in return is that his amendment also includes a lot of caveats. Um, there are specific provisions now in the law that says that it, nothing in the law shall prevent the teaching of these concepts, you know, within a historical context as part of as part of an instruction. So, if you wanted to talk about the concept of, for instance, white supremacy or even structural racism, as long as you're doing it in a uh, kind of non-biased way, you can do that. Um, and so that was talked about a lot yesterday as saying we've improved this. And the governor himself has said, you know, and who the governor, you know, opposed this language to begin with. The governor has now said that he um, finds this new version much more palatable and, and, and seems to even support it. Um, yeah, let's and, listen. Can we pause there? Because we have some of Governor Sununu speaking on NH Today. Uh, he argued that the language in the budget crafted by the Senate was not HB 544, which which emerged out of the House. He said HB 544 was dead. And here he says the new language, as you're describing, Ethan, he says the new language strengthens the state's anti-discrimination laws. It just affirms that you cannot discriminate in a classroom. I, I, we all agree on that, right? right. And, and, there, and there are repercussions for that. So what, in whatever form, not just on race, on sexual identity and gender and all that kind of stuff. And, and so it's, it's very comprehensive in, in that approach. And, so, and that's what I said two months ago. I said, look, if they're going to do anything, that's the approach, the foundation they have to have. Focus on our, our current anti-discrimination laws, which were okay. Let's strengthen those to make sure parents and, and individuals know that, you know, just because the color of your skin or your gender or whatever it might be, you're not going to be, a kid isn't going to be discriminated against and told them he's wrong. So, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know where I stand exactly with the final language. I think the language could still change, but I do appreciate that they took that old piece of garbage and threw it away, which we, we asked them to, and, and they couldn't even pass it, and replaced it with something that was more stable, and I think that, that uh, a little more clearly defined. That's very important with this stuff. You have to clearly define it, and I think the Senate at least has, has made a, a great attempt at doing that. That's Governor Chris Sununu speaking on NH Today about the, the new evolution of what was once HB 544. That's now in the Senate. We're speaking with Ethan DeWitt and Anne-Marie Timmons of New Hampshire Bulletin. And with you, if you've got thoughts, our number, 1-800-892-6477. On this topic, we got a note from Jeannie in Plainview who says, It is shocking to me that any person would oppose thorough discussion and education about divisive issues, especially in the school environment. Schools are where we are supposed to be teaching students to be able to express their opinions and listen to others' opinions, as well as learn about all sides of difficult historical events in order to not repeat tragic mistakes. Without thorough exploration of divisive issues, we allow people to be easily swayed to extremism because they won't have the tools to consider other points of view. That's the comment from Jeannie in Plainview. Jeannie, thank you very much for writing in. Uh, Ethan DeWitt and Henry Timmons, if you want to weigh in on this as well, uh, but we'll go to Ethan first. Uh, lots of businesses came out opposed to the language in HB 544. Uh, have those businesses, to your knowledge, reconsidered their position in, in light of this new language in the budget? No. I actually talked to the Business and Industry Association 
um, association that in, in a lot of times is kind of um, kind of favorable to Republican legislation. And I talked to them after this new Senate amendment came out because again, like I said, that amendment took out the application for um, contractors. So I was, I asked, you know, this doesn't directly affect many of your members. Have you guys changed your stance? And um, they said, no, they, they said that they still oppose the kind of the underlying function of the bill, which I should stress is essentially the same as the house. I know the governor said yesterday that house bill 544 is dead. But the effect of kind of the regulation of speech in uh, trainings and the regulation of speech in classrooms is still there. Um, and so the BIA said that this wasn't enough of a change. We oppose this on principle and we believe that this will, um, you know, stifle the, you know, ability to attract, um, you know, diverse people to the state and also to kind of build up um, minority owned businesses. Uh, and that this will have kind of bigger ramifications than just what it might mean for one business or another business. Um, and so they've, they've stood steady there. Um, there was a number of businesses that, uh, that signed a letter, I think over a hundred of them um, in the union leader this week as well, mm -hmm. opposing it. So the, op the opposition has been strong. One thing to note is that because this has been added to the budget uh, uh, last week, there's no time for a hearing anymore. And so what you've seen is that this Senate amendment is, rat is much different than what the House had in a number of different ways, but, you know, not least of which is the fact that there's a whole new process through the Human Rights Commission to adjudicate these claims. And there has been no ability to kind of hear from the people who might be affected. And so it's really just, if you talk to the NEA, the, you know, for the teachers unions, um, if you talk to the, the business association, um, you can hear their, what they say, but nobody has actually kind of collected all that into a hearing format and it'll move forward in the budget without that hearing. So that was another point of criticism. Um, that this was the wrong format to introduce this last minute change. Mm. Well, let's go to the phones and, and, and talk to Laura in Pembroke. Laura, thank you very much for calling. What's on your mind? Hi. Yeah, I'm, I don't quite understand how teachers with the new language are now allowed to teach something like structural racism in, in a historical context. But then it seems as if they can't implicate that that affects people today. So, for example, they might be able to teach something like redlining, the systematic discrimination against African-Americans and other people of color in terms of housing. There's, you know, data on that. There's maps on that. But then it doesn't seem as if they can take the next step and say, and then that affects people today. Because if they can only teach it historically, can they not then say that there are repercussions for the historical uh, systematic examples of systematic racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Laura. Good questions. And, and Kevin's comments by email seem related. Kevin asks, how will they be able to teach about hate crimes? They can't tell kids that they can get in trouble for racial attacks. So there, there's, there's questions about, uh, about how uh, things that are backed up by fact that are still disputed, frankly, by, by some uh, in our society, how will those things be taught? Uh, that question might be be too broad to address in any uh, specific way right now, Anne Marie. But I wanted to give you a chance to talk about about this particular part of the budget as well. Do you have anything to share, Anne Marie? I really have to defer to Ethan. I, I okay. like listen here. I did want to give you a chance to talk. This. No, I can't add anything to what Ethan has said. Okay, Thank Ethan, you. Well, well, Ethan, what 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 will you be watching for as this as this evolves? Well, the crucial, I think. Um, 
more so than many other years, um, is the, the crucial thing to watch is the committee of conference. This is where the House and the Senate, they start to stitch together their differences. And the question is that with the governor indicating that he is, he, he seems to be willing to go along with both divisive concepts and the abortion ban. Those are the two sort of snags in the budget that everyone was watching to see what he would do. He indicated yesterday that he's, um, you know, mostly supportive of, of both of those provisions. That means that it could be a lot easier to get through negotiations. But uh, as, as always, it's impossible to predict the House has a completely different mind from the Senate. And so we'll just see what happens to all of these things in the next few weeks. And a lot of that is very difficult to follow um, for the press, let alone for the public. Um, but the end result will be some sort of negotiated package that goes to Sununu, and we'll see what the end game is. Great. Well, a few more things to talk about before we let both of you go. And uh, one of it is one of these things is right to work legislation. And Maria, I'll go to you on this first. Uh, another issue that came up in the legislature, uh, right to work, which has to do with whether or not employers can collect union fees from non-union workers. This was last in the legislature in 2017, where it was defeated. And uh, yesterday we learned again it was defeated in the legislature. Uh, Anne-Marie, why was it back this year at all? It's, it comes back every year. Um, it's, this is the 35th-ish time that it's come up in the last 40 years. Um, and it passed. it did pass in 10 years ago. Um, only to have Governor Lynch veto it. So um, again, it was up, like you said, in 2017, it failed. And I, Ethan will correct me if I'm wrong. I think it not only failed, but said, you can't bring this back for two years. So it's back again this year. And again, it failed uh, with the help of Republicans, which has um, put them at odds with the governor. Uh, yesterday, it failed by, let's see, 24 votes, 21 Republicans joined Democrats in voting it down. Um, and again, it's been postponed for two years now, so it can't come back right away. And I, I know that people on the floor say this isn't this, you know, this is a party issue. They'll often say that Republicans are expected to go with right to work. Democrats are expected to fight against it. But what you see is Republicans who have been in unions or who have family members who have been in unions see it vote differently. And that I think what was explained to me, that is really the deciding factor is if you have personal experience with the union, you're, you're inclined to fight right to work legislation. And I think we saw that again yesterday. It was the same, same arguments we hear every year. Um, I will say the folks who were for it thought there, there was a 2018 US, court, US Supreme Court decision that left um, right to work supporters hopeful that decision said for public sector unions like our state employees association, you can't keep charging those agency fees like right you're already under right to work essentially you can no longer charge fees to people who aren't in your union. So this this law would have applied only to our private sector unions, um, but that still wasn't enough to get it across the line for at least 21 Republicans. Thank you for the update on, on such an important story. And and, and last but not least, uh, Ethan DeWitt, tax cuts. That's been a, a pretty consistent part of this budget the whole way through. How did the Senate react to that yesterday? Yeah, I think that um, if you've ever followed in one of these debates, it's the same arguments that are made kind of every year about this. Um, this would uh, reduce the, the business profits tax um, from 7.7% to 7.5%. Um, that's down from 8.5%, um, which was what it was, I believe, back in 2015. So this has been a gradual reduction that started under Governor Hassan. Uh, she was kind of 
forced into that position by the Republican legislature at that time. So it's been a debate that's been continuing. Um, the um, Senator Lou D'Alessandro, um, the dean of the Senate, the, the um, you know a Democrat from Manchester, um, kind of was his argument was that the taxes have been lowered enough, and that if we lower them anymore, then we won't have the revenue that we need, and that that revenue is what causes us to not need an income tax, for instance. Um, Republicans see it totally differently. They say that it's been the lowering of that tax over the last six years that has led to um, the strong revenue growth that we have and that lowering it more will help. So it's one of those debates that just you're in one camp or another and uh, it's really hard to you know, break through that. But this, this would be the kind of the last in a six year series of reductions to both the business taxes um, there's also a meals and rooms tax reduction, the 9% that you pay at restaurants and hotels and in drive-throughs, um, that will be reduced to 8.5%. And there's a phasing out of the interest and dividends tax, which only applies to people who make, I think it's $2,400 or more every year in, from their stocks. Mm -hmm. um, that would uh, also be phased out for five years. So a lot of um, tax reductions. Well, Ethan DeWitt of New Hampshire Bulletin, thank you very much for being on the program today. We really appreciate it. Glad to be here. And Anne-Marie Timmons, also of New Hampshire Bulletin, thank you for being on the program. Oh, thanks, Peter. It's great to be with you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but, but before we do, one mention on this interest in dividends tax phase out. Ellis wrote in uh, to say, uh, one key piece of the budget uh, that has not received the attention it deserves, the proposal to eliminate the interest and dividends tax. Uh, as you mentioned to your listeners already, the current budget proposal cuts DCF, DCYF mental health professionals and leaves a big hole in the current public school budget, even without the voucher provision. And those are just the most egregious shortfalls. New Hampshire cannot afford to drop the interest and dividends tax. That's the comment from Ellis. Thank you very much, Ellis. Really appreciate it. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the state of the state's nonprofits ahead of New Hampshire Gives campaign to draw attention to and raise money for the state's mission-driven organizations. We'll speak with Catherine Reardon, Kathleen Reardon, excuse me, the CEO of the New Hampshire Center for Nonprofits. What questions do you have for her? Or maybe what nonprofit would you like to give a shout out to? Give us a call, 1-800-892-6477. This is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange on NHPR. We'll be right back. A few things have changed since NHPR first began as Granite State Public Radio just about 40 years ago. Tonight we welcome WEVO in Concord, New Hampshire to the NPR and All Things Considered family. But through it all, local listener support has made this station possible. And for a limited time, we'll send you our latest enamel camp mug featuring the retro Granite State Public Radio logo when you become a sustainer at the discounted rate of $5 a month. Give today at NHPR.org. Welcome back to the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello, and with us now for this part of the program is Kathleen Reardon. She's the CEO of the New Hampshire Center for Nonprofits. Kathleen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, and listeners, uh, if you have questions about New Hampshire Gives or charitable giving in New Hampshire in general, please give us a call now. Our number is one 800 892 or email exchange at nhpr.org. So, Kathleen, we're talking about New Hampshire Gives because that's next week, starting June 8th at 5 p.m. So uh, tell us a little bit about New Hampshire Gives, uh, what it is and what the goals of it are. Sure. New Hampshire Gives is a 24-hour online uh, fundraising event um, that really brings together uh, Granite Staters and nonprofits to raise funds um, for those organizations. 
This year we have uh, nearly 600 nonprofits who are participating um, and they, they all have profiles on the site, nhgives.org, where uh, individuals can give directly to those organizations that they care about. So if people are interested in, in funding or helping to further the mission of a mission-driven organization, they can go to nhgives.org and check out those, uh, those organizations in the state that are, that are doing work in the state. That's right. That's right. And, you know, if you um, aren't really sure who you would want to support, the site allows you to um, search. So you could say, you know, I want to I want to support an organization that is working in the environment or supporting women and girls or um, helping with mental health. And you can there's a number of categories that you could look at and it will bring up for you a list of organizations that are addressing those issues. Um, so it's a great way as well for people to discover organizations that are making a huge difference in our communities. Got it. Okay. And and so if you go to nhgives.org and you find an organization you want to give to, do you give money to nhgives.org or do you end up giving directly to those organizations through whatever platform they have? For... Yeah, it goes through through that platform. It goes directly to that organization, Okay. Um, which is which is wonderful. And then, you know, it also you're able to um, give to multiple organizations. And, and, and maximize that. The, the site also allows um, for people to um, raise funds for causes to become a fundraising champion for that organization. Um, and so I think a lot of organizations have, have people lined up to do that or are continuing to encourage people to get ready uh, because this is a, you know, a peer-to-peer, very social fundraising event. Even though it's online, it is a real way of um, you know, it's a crowdfunding type of event where uh, people come together to show their support. So in addition to giving, um, they, they then uh, put the information on social media that I supported this cause and invite their friends to join them. So it's a way that we can um, make a collective difference um, and be part of something that's a lot bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. So the last year plus has been a very weird one to say the least. Uh, how will New Hampshire Gives look different this year because of the pandemic? Well, I mean, the beauty of New Hampshire Gives is it's it's online. So it's, you know, it, it is uh, very easy to make New Hampshire Gives continue to be successful. Of course, we saw last year, um, with the pandemic that many organizations, you know, had to cancel their fundraising events um, or pivot to online. So that's part of why um, last year's 2020 New Hampshire Gives uh, shattered all previous records and raised an incredible amount of money. And we know that the needs that nonprofits are experiencing, our communities are experiencing, remains high. Um, so we're hoping that Granite Staters will once again rally around nonprofits in that way. Um, one of the things that has been, you know, a silver lining, if you will, is that donors have really stepped up and we have um, more than a million dollars in matching funds that are pledged to New Hampshire Give. So um, there's $300,000 that's a site-wide match and there'll be times throughout the 24-hour period um, where donors who give um, at that time, for example, when we kick off at five o'clock, there's $100,000 uh, the first hundred thousand dollars given will be matched dollar for dollar to any to organization in the list. Yeah, if to any organization in the list that through that site wide. So as long as your your donation is within that first hundred hundred thousand dollars, and it's up to two a two hundred fifty dollar donation that I make um, or you make, then um, it that donate that 
that a nonprofit will receive a match. Oh, so that's we encouraging we'll people quickly. to get on there at five o'clock and start yeah, making your donation. Yes, but we have 10 times, 10 times throughout the day where there will be those matching pools. I see. Um, so yeah, so last year we we um, we had a match that that actually was exhausted in the first eight, first minutes, eight minutes of the day. Wow. Right? We, you know, so we're spreading it out. And then there's another $700,000 that donors have pledged to very specific nonprofits. And you can go today on nhgives.org and look at um, the tab that says matches and see um, those organizations that have matching funds as well. Listeners, we're speaking with Kathleen Reardon, CEO of the New Hampshire Center for Nonprofits. We're speaking about New Hampshire Gives, an effort to draw attention to the state's nonprofits. Uh, New Hampshire Gives starts next week, June 8th at 5 p.m. But as we've been hearing, there are special moments where gifts can be matched dollar for dollar. Uh, saying dollar for dollar on the air right now always makes me sound like we're in the middle of a pledge drive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you said last year was, was very successful. Uh, how do you think this year is going to go? You know, based on the fact that we have so many matches, we have more nonprofits participating, they've been gearing up um, and, and getting ready for it. I, I, I feel very optimistic. Um, you know, we hope that that Granite Staters will once again show up big because, you know, nonprofits continue to meet the increased needs in our communities. Um, so we, you know, we don't set a goal. We, we always want to raise as much as we can um, and encourage people to, to do what they can for nonprofits. But I'm, I'm, opti- I'm optimistic that it's going to be a great year. Overall, is it possible to say how New Hampshire nonprofits are doing given uh, changes due to the pandemic, whether it's, you know, spending habits or, or thoughts about which organizations matter more than others? You know, how are, how are nonprofits doing overall? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that it's it's hard to talk um, very, you know, holistically because the sector is quite diverse. You know, we have a lot of smaller organizations, organizations addressing different issues. Um, we did a Pulse survey recently and, you know, more than half of the respondents to that survey said that their um, revenue has decreased since the pandemic. Um, and at the same time, many of them are addressing increased needs. You know, we know that some nonprofits um, have been literally shuttered. For example, you know, arts organizations, theaters, um, and the like have have not been able to um, do their work in their traditional way. And while they've um, been able to to present their information um, through online platforms, you know, it hasn't been quite the same um, impact. So it's really varied the picture of sort of the financial health um, of the sector as well as what they're doing. Um, but nonprofits have been remarkably resilient um, and fortunate that you know there has been some uptick in um, support, crisis support, as well as federal relief resources um, that have helped keep nonprofits um, through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And through the pandemic, have you noticed any change in patterns of giving or the ways people give? Well. Um, Certainly online giving has been um, a growing trend um, even before the pandemic. And I was just reading a a study uh, nationally that indicated social giving, what they call social giving is up. Um, Social giving being things like giving days, peer-to-peer fundraising. Certainly we've seen here in New Hampshire that, you know, every online, the traditional events that took place 
you know, in banquet halls across the state went virtual last year. And, um, you know, but I think that will probably return. We'll, we'll probably end up having um, more events again. But one of the other things that were, was interesting that uh, we found from a lot of our nonprofits, they were able to increase their visibility by using Zoom to just talk about the impact of their programs and bringing their supporters together. Um, so I think that there's been some more relationship building, even though um, we've been social, socially isolated. Um, organizations have figured out ways to uh, reach their supporters or potential supporters. Well, Kathleen Reardon, CEO of the New Hampshire Center for Nonprofits, thank you very much for being on the program today. Thanks again. And remember, nhgives.org, June 8th and 9th. June 8th and 9th uh, starts then, nhgives.org. Uh, worth mentioning that NHPR is is participating in New Hampshire Gives, uh, so that's next week. Thank you very much for tuning in to the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup today. We're going to link to all the stories uh, that uh, we discussed with Ethan DeWitt and Anne-Marie Timmons of New Hampshire Bulletin earlier in the program. The Exchange is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Today's show is produced by Exchange Senior Producer Christina Phillips and Jane Vaughn. Our producers include Jessica Hunt and our engineers Dan Colgan. And our executive producer is Michael Brindley. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you so much for listening and stay cool this weekend. expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.